0: we might obey you, that we might fall in line with your will for our lives. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Would you now show us the way? Would you now open our eyes to see what you have called us to? Your word is our sword for this battle. Your word is the balm for our healing. Your word is the chain to bind us to your heart. Would you do that for us now? Would you open your word to us? Speak to us as we listen to you. Lord, I pray that we would not be merely hearers today. Yes, let us hear, Lord. Let us hear. Open our ears to hear. May we not be merely hearers. May we be doers of your word. Help us to see the truth of your word. Help us to see its value, that it's more precious than gold. Sweeter than honey. Warn us by the truth of Your Word and show us that there's great reward in keeping Your Word. Your law, Your Word, Your truth is perfect, O God. May it open and enlighten our eyes. May it make the foolish simple. May it make the foolish and the simple wise. May it make the, the wayward trust You and obey You. Lord, open Your Word to us now. We need You. We are desperate people pray You'd open Your Word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I hope you have a copy of Scripture with you this morning. If you don't, you can grab a pew Bible in the rack in front of you and go ahead and turn to the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. In our study of the book of Malachi, as we're just working passage by passage through this book, we're going to be looking today at Malachi chapter 3. Verses 6 through 15. If you grab the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 802. 802. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. What a privilege it is to read God's word over us and to study it together. God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against Me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is the Word of God. May God write its truth on our hearts. When I was a young child, My family's house was burglarized. I don't remember where we had been that night, but we got home very late. It was dark. And when we opened the door, we immediately knew that there was something very wrong. Our usually nice and clean and tidy house was destroyed. It was an absolute mess. Stuff was just thrown everywhere. The thieves had broken into a large glass window that we had at the back of our house. And in the process of breaking into our house, evidently one of them cut themselves pretty badly on the glass. And so not only was stuff strewn everywhere, but there was blood everywhere. On the walls, on the carpet, it, it was everywhere. It was a traumatic experience for me as a child... My clean and safe home was all of a sudden violated. Someone had been in our house, had stolen our possessions, and had disregarded our cleanness and neatness. I had no idea who the robbers were as a young child, but I was angry at them. I was angry at them not because they stole our 80's electronics, but because they had had violated our space, our personal space. They took more than just physical possessions and electronics. For a time, they took our sense of safety. They took our sense of peace. They robbed us of our dignity. We all recognize just how deeply wrong it is to steal someone else's possessions. Like To steal from someone is more than just the transaction of goods. It's more than just a taking of property. It's a, it's a personal attack on them, on that other person. Robbing someone is a way to inflict pain on someone. It violates them in their personhood. It communicates hatred and disdain for the other person in a way that just simply words could never communicate. If you've ever been robbed or mugged, you'll never forget it. It's a traumatic experience, even if what was stolen really didn't amount to that much. Which is why the language that God uses in this passage is so very shocking. God rebukes His beloved, His chosen people for robbing Him. In verse 8, notice God says, you are robbing me. Verse 9, God says, you are cursed with a curse. Why? For you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. This is a scandalous thought, is it not? They had robbed God Almighty. They mugged the Lord of the universe. They broke into God's house, trampled His courts, and stole His goods. They held the omnipotent God up and took his wallet. They burglarized God's possessions. They jacked his car. They heisted his valuables. This is shocking language that God uses to rebuke his people. And it's even more shocking when you consider that this rebuke comes on the heels of God's faithfulness to them in verse six and his gracious invitation to them in verse seven. Look at it. In verse 6, God clearly declares His immutability, which is just a big word that means He does not change. He is immutable. God says, I, the Lord, do not change. God has been, is, and will remain consistent with Himself. Whatever God is, in all of His attributes, in all of His glory, He will always be. He is absolutely perfect. And the reason God declares that He does not change is because that's the reason His people aren't consumed in their sin. They still exist as a people because God is immutable. Because God does not change. Notice He calls them the children of Jacob. That is, they are like Jacob. Jacob, remember, was a swindler. He was a cheater. His name actually means him who cheats. And so Jacob is best known for deceiving his brother out of his birthright. And God says, that's who you're acting like. That's who you're being. And yet the Lord is unfailing in keeping His promises. He doesn't change. The only reason His people aren't destroyed, they aren't consumed, is because God is relentlessly faithful to His promises. He is good and He is merciful and He is that always. And so notice God's gracious invitation to His sinful people in verse 7. He's the faithful God. He's the unchanging one. And then He says in verse 7, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from My statutes and you have not kept them. Now we would expect right now for God to say, and because of that, I'm going to wipe you out. But that's not what He says. You've always turned aside from Me. You've never not turned away from Me. And then God says... Return to Me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The faithful God woos His people back to Him. And so that first part of verse 7, that's a description of all of us, is it not? From the beginning, we have turned aside from God's Word, and we have not kept it. But God does not discard His people, does He? He does not consume or destroy His chosen, His beloved people. He loves us, and so He invites us to return to Him. He invites us at every stage of our lives to turn to Him. And when we turn to God, He says He will turn to us. He will return to us. And so friends, wh- whoever you are, wherever You've been, whatever you've done, however you've sinned, however far you have wandered, God invites you to return to Him today. Return to His love, return to His grace. You've changed, but God has not. He remains faithful to His promises, and He will turn to you when you turn to Him. And so, how shocking is it? How shocking is it in this context for this faithful God to be rebuking His people for robbing Him? How could someone rob this gracious, this merciful God? You see, there are times when someone steals from someone who's really selfish. You know, someone who's really vile. And you know we might think, mm, that's, they got what was coming to them. They got what they deserve. We don't really mind for Robin Hood to steal from the rich and give to the poor, Right? But but what about when someone steals from someone this gracious, from someone this kind? How could they ever rob this gracious God? And an even more pointed question is are we guilty of robbing God? Are we guilty of this sin so that we need this rebuke? Well, let's ask a few questions of this passage. And try to expose ourselves what it is God is is telling his people here and how he's telling them to return to him. And after we see what God says, we're gonna think specifically about how this passage applies to us today. So I've been studying the book of James. We're gonna we're gonna start a series on the book of James, God willing, in January. I'm really excited about it. I've been meditating on it. Chapter 1, verse 19 just keeps coming back as one of the just just clearest calls from God where he says, Do not Be merely hearers of my word, but be doers of my word. And the whole book of James is about doing God's word. It's about how the gospel causes us to do, to be, all that God has called us to do and be. To not merely expose ourselves to God's word, but to obey it. And so if you want to outline this morning, we're going to to hear God's word, and we're going to talk about how to do God's word. So when we hear God's Word, let's just ask some questions. Here's the first question. How were they robbing God? God accuses them of robbing Him. So how were they robbing God? What exactly is God accusing His people of doing? Well, thankfully, He tells them exactly how they're robbing Him. We don't have to guess at what this means. Notice at the end of verse 8, after the people arrogantly ask, how have we robbed you? God says, you've robbed Me in your tithes and contributions. And in verse 10, the remedy to their robbing God, the way to return to him according to God, is the command in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. So they were robbing God by withholding tithes and offerings that God had commanded his people to give to him. So it wasn't as if the people were breaking into the temple and stealing the gold or the utensils there. No, it was that they were keeping what they should have been giving. And so evidently in God's eyes, robbing him is not about taking something that he owns, but about keeping something that we should give. Keeping what we should give is the same thing as taking what belongs to Him. Withholding tithes and offerings is robbing God. Now the word tithe simply means one-tenth or ten percent. God had commanded His people in His law to pay the tithe ten a, percent a of the increase of their crops and harvest and they were to give the first and best ten percent of their increase to the Lord to declare that all of it belonged to Him. They gave the first 10%, the best 10%, to say, all of it, God, is yours. They were to give this tithe and these offerings to the temple in order to sustain the priests who didn't have land of their own, and in order to supply the to feed the poor, in order that God's house would be well maintained. And if you read the law carefully, it was actually much more than 10% that God required of his people. There was required offerings and contributions that scholars estimate could have been up to 25% of their increase annually. And so the people in Malachi's day were withholding God's required tithe and offerings. So it seems like from the text that there was probably some sort of shortage of food. There was some sort of famine in the land at this time. And so the people are looking at their situation It doesn't seem like God cares about them. And so they just figure they'll keep what they should give. If God really isn't showing up, if God really isn't blessing, then I'm not going to give any more to him. I'm just going to keep it so that I'm well taken care of. And God says this is the reason they are experiencing the famine and the shortage that they're experiencing. They're robbing God is the cause of their hardship. And so how were they robbing God? They were robbing Him by not giving what they should have given, what God required of them to give. But why were they robbing God? Here's the second question as we seek to hear God's Word this morning. How were they robbing God? And why were they robbing God? Well, we can answer the why question by simply saying people have always been sinful and selfish and materialistic. What else do we expect from the children of Jacob, right? But this text gives us, I think, a more specific answer to that question, an answer that i found to be very challenging in evaluating myself. Look again at verses 13 through 15. So in verse 13, God accuses his people of speaking hard words against him. Now listen, God knows how you feel when people say mean and ugly things about you. God knows how you feel. He knows what it is to have hard words spoken against him. And in verse 14, we see some of what those hard words were. What were the people saying against God? They were saying, according to verse 14, it is vain to serve God. In other words, they were saying, what's the profit of obeying God's commands? What does it get you to obey God? Like, what's the point? And not only that, but notice verse 15. They were saying, not only is it pointless to serve God, but they were actually saying it's profitable to not serve God. They were looking at the unbelievers and saying, see, look at them, they're putting God to the test and all they do is prosper. All they're doing is prospering by disobeying God. And so they're saying it's vain to serve God and it's profitable to not serve God. They looked around at the unbelievers and they had food in abundance. They had everything they need. And the people wondered, why serve God if he isn't even going to bless us when we serve him? You see the incredibly selfish way they were viewing God? They only wanted God for what he could give them. And if he wasn't blessing them with more material things, then they were just going to keep what they had to themselves. Friends, God is not a means to get what we really want. God is not like a butler that we can call upon to fetch us more comforts while we worship something or someone else. God is worthy of worship and service because He is God. And any benefit we get from serving God and obeying God, and there are many, is sheer grace from God that we do not deserve. No one puts God in their debts. As Paul would say, what do you have that you did not receive? Answer? Nothing. Everything is sheer grace that God gives. And this should penetrate us deeply, friends. Because in what ways have we said it is pointless to obey God and it's actually profitable today to not obey His commands? This is the mentality that leads to all the various wickedness that we have seen God rebuke in the book of Malachi. Right? The people were offering lame sacrifices because they thought it's pointless to worship God. They were divorcing their wives and marrying unbelievers because they were weary of doing what God requires. They were no longer amazed by the love and faithfulness of God toward them. They were not overflowing with worship and awe of God. Their obedience did not spring from the well of delight and joy. And this led them to rob God. They robbed Him because they did not see Him as worthy of their undiluted allegiance. They robbed Him because they no longer saw Him as worthy of their attention and their affection. That's why they robbed Him. But the final question is, why is it foolish to rob God? What does it mean to rob God? It means withholding what we should give. Why did the people rob God? Because they didn't see him as worthy of worship and obedience. Why is that foolish? Why is it foolish to rob God? Well, obviously it's foolish to rob God because he's God. He's the God who's totally faithful. He does not change. And He is the gracious gracious God and patient and merciful to His wayward people. He calls them back to Himself. But also, in this passage, God tells us why it's foolish to rob Him in tithes and offerings because He says He pours out His blessing on those who obey and trust Him. The reason it's foolish to rob him is because he's the God who blesses his obedient people. Now, verses 10-12 through are among the most misused verses in the Old Testament. Prosperity preachers have twisted these promises to mean that if we give money to God, we should expect more and more money from God. Have you ever heard a sermon on these verses like that? In fact, I would argue that the prosperity preachers are doing the exact same thing to God as the people in Malachi's day were doing. If you give to God only because you want more money from God, it is not God you are worshiping, but money. You hear that? If you only want what God can give and not God Himself, it is not God that you love and treasure and worship health and wealth and prosperity preachers are essentially saying to you it is vain to worship God simply because He's worthy of worship. They treat God as a vending machine. You put some money in and you expect some treats to pop out. The Bible never promises physical riches and perfect health with no sorrow in this life. Quite the opposite, friends. We are promised that as we follow Jesus in this world, we will be persecuted and we will be despised. As Jesus said, in this world, you will, not you might, but you will have trouble. However, knowing how God's promises have been abused by the prosperity preachers, our tendency is to swing the other way, right? To swing in the opposite direction and downplay God's Promises. In this passage, friends, God promises some incredibly tremendous blessings to His people who trust and obey Him. And so while these promises don't say that God can be treated like a vending machine, give money to Him and He'll give money to you, there there are some great promises that we need to not downplay. Notice the Lord's response to His obedient and faithful people highlights. His lavish generosity to them. To people who deserve His wrath and His anger, God promises to pour out an abundance of blessing from heaven. Verse 10 says that the windows of heaven will be open and God will empty heaven on His people. God will hold nothing back. Notice it says, until there is no more need. God will make the land fruitful again. Notice verse 12, God says, He will do such a work in response to their obedience that all nations will call them a land of delight. Notice in verse 11 that God promises to orchestrate the smallest of details to bless His obedient people. He says, He will rebuke the devourer. Evidently, one of the reasons for this famine was locusts or some kind of insect that was eating the crops. And God says, that's not too small for me to handle. I will take care of that problem for you. God will be a gracious exterminator. God commands His people to give a fraction of what He has given to them. And God says He will respond with everything He has. Notice in verse 10, God actually tells His people to test Him in this. What? What? Like, I thought we're not supposed to test God. And so what is God saying when He says, put me to the test in this? Well, there is a testing of God that comes from hard-heartedness. We're told not to test God in that way. But there evidently is also a testing of God that is banking on His promises. The difference is in testing God according to his promises and not just what we want him to do. Don't test him based on what just you want him to do. Test him based on what his word promises. Test him based on what he has promised to be and do for us. And that God causes people to test him is basically him saying, It's impossible for me not to keep my promises. That's what God is saying. I will keep my promises. God will do what He has said, and therefore, it is incredibly foolish to rob God Almighty. It is incredibly foolish. So summary, they were robbing God by withholding what they should have given because they thought it was pointless to worship God. And in doing so, they foolishly missed out on God's promised blessings. So how should we respond to God's Word today? How does this passage apply to us who seek to follow King Jesus and obey His Word? I've got three application thoughts or questions. So we've, we've now heard God's Word. We've listened to it. Now let's be doers of God's Word. How shall we apply? How shall we obey God today? Three application questions or thoughts. Number one, are Christians supposed to tithe? Are Christians required to tithe today? There's actually a massive debate among Christian scholars as to whether the tithe is still a requirement for Christians today. So just to let you know that, we don't have time to debate all of those issues now, but let me simply... Summarize like this. I do not think that the tithe is still a hard and fast requirement for Christians like it was for the Israelites under God's law. I don't think that the tithe is still a hard and fast requirement for Christians like it was for people who were under the law. But, before you take that the wrong way, let me clearly say, The New Testament teaches that we should as Christians give sacrificially. In other words, the New Testament calls us to be so generous, so giving, give so much, give such a significant amount that we're to feel its effects in our everyday lives. We're to give so much that it suppresses the lure of materialism and the idol of security that exists in all of our hearts. Plus, Even though, as Christians, I would say we're not obligated to follow the commands of the law, all of the commands of the law, because Jesus fulfilled them in our place, we still understand that God's law reveals God's heart and His character. Well, even though every command in the law is not for us to obey today, for those of us who have been redeemed by by Jesus. God's law still reveals His heart, His desire, His character. And so we are not to get rid of the principle of proportional giving, which is clearly supported in the New Testament. Now, statistics show that the average Christian gives about 2.8% of their income to God's purposes. 2.8%. And the statistics also show that the more people make, the less the percentage of their income that they give. Now let me ask you a question. If God required His people under the Old Covenant to give 10%, and as I said earlier, the number is really more like 25% when you add up all the various offerings of the Mosaic Law. If God required His people to give that amount, do you think that He would expect less of people redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Like you have to answer that question for yourself. God hasn't changed. He is still the God who, who doesn't want His people to rob Him. and He's told us to be generous and cheerful in our giving in such a way that it, it costs us something. So, even though we aren't under the law and there's not this strict requirement that we give a certain percentage... I along with the majority of Christians throughout church history would say my personal counsel would be the tithe is a great place to start Christian giving. The tithe is a great place to start. Not as a legalistic ritual to try to get God to not be mad at you, but as a cheerful, a joyful expression of your desire to honor the Lord with all of the increase He gives you. Giving 10% of your gross income to the Lord's purposes was never intended to be a stopping place of giving. Many of us should actually give more than 10% of our income. And so a good place to start is with the tithe, 10% of your gross total income, but don't make that the goal. And so are we robbing God if we don't give at least 10% of our income to God's purposes? I would answer that question with the yes and no. It depends. You see, the reality is, you can give 10% of your income and that not be sacrificial for you at all. Like if you give 10% and you assume the other 90% is for you to do with whatever you want, I'd say you're robbing God. The reason we start with 10% is to declare that all of it belongs to Him. That it's all devoted to His purposes. And if all of your resources are not devoted to God, just like if all of your life is not devoted to God, you are robbing God. I am robbing God if everything is not devoted to Him. So, should Christians tithe? Christians required to tithe? I would answer it: yes and no. Certainly not in a way that's legalistic, certainly not in a way that thinks God's up there with a calculator and he's mad at me if I'm not giving a certain of a percentage. But yes, as a, as a starting point, as a way to devote everything to God, as a way to say, God, I'm fully in supporting Your purposes in this world. Here's the second thought of application. The one that most naturally arises from this passage is this. Test God on this. Test God on this. God says, this is not me saying, put me to the test. God Himself calls upon us to test Him in giving. And God is asking and and calling us to test Him. God is saying, do you trust Me this much? Do you actually trust Me? And what's the evidence of your trusting Him? You see, we can sit there all day long and say, God, yes, I trust You. But what's the evidence of our trusting Him? It's in actually obeying Him. It's in actually giving away a sacrificial portion of our income to His purposes. But someone objects. What if I don't have enough to pay my bills? God says, test me on this. But I need to pay off these debts. God says, put me to the test. But what about test me on this, God says. Step out in faith and believe God's promises enough for it to cost you something. To show, to declare that God is your supreme treasure and not money and not security, and not stuff. So, here's my personal counsel in response to the teaching of God's Word. God saying, test me on this. God's saying, be generous as I have been generous to you. Here would be my personal counsel. As we conclude 2021, and as we approach 2022 in just a few weeks, evaluate your giving to God's purposes a great time to evaluate. I'm serious. Write down on a piece of paper or use a Word document, write down exactly how much income your family brings in from all sources. You can do that yearly. You can do that monthly. If that fluctuates for you, just write down a conservative number of what you make. And then to write down all that you make, write down exactly how much you give to God's purposes. You might have to go searching through your your bank statements to find that, but do the work and write down exactly what you give to God's purposes. And then, with those two numbers in front of you, figure out exactly what percentage of your income you give. Again, not to be legalistic, not because God has a calculator up there, but just so you'll know. Just so you'll know exactly what, it, what percentage you give. So the way you figure out a percentage like this is you divide the amount you give by the amount you make And then you multiply that number by 100, and that's the percentage that you give. Seriously, do this. Evaluate yourself. Figure out exactly what percentage it is you give. And whether that percentage is high or whether that percentage is low, evaluate it. Just ask yourself the tough questions about why that number is where it is. This is part of Christian discipleship that we don't like to talk about, but it's part of maturity. It's part of growth in godliness that we need to to not be afraid to do. Now, after you've done some evaluating with your exact percentages, here's my counsel. If you're not giving at least 10% of your total income and you're convinced that that's somewhere God wants you to start, redo your budget from scratch at that point. From scratch. Just scrap everything you've known about your budget and just start over. And here's how you create a budget. Getting real practical here. Here's how you create a budget. You put your monthly income at the top of the page. This is how much I anticipate making this month. And then you give every dollar a job for that month. Here's how every dollar is going to be spent out of what I make. And instead of making giving to God's purposes, something you do with just what's left over, I challenge you to put giving to God first. The very first thing on your budget. Before you give any dollar another job, write down whatever you believe God wants you to give to His purposes. If that's 10%, if that's 15%, whatever that that would be. Before taxes, before saving, before car payments, before food, before everything. Write down what you're going to give to God. So you have your income at the top, And the very first line is, this is what I'm going to give to God this month or this year, whatever budget you're working off of, this is what I'm going to give to God's purposes. And then you start writing down all your other expenses in order of importance, giving each dollar a job. Now, that may require some tough decisions. You may get halfway through your very important expenses like food and rent or mortgage or light bill, and you might have to make some tough decisions about keeping some things or getting rid of some things or not doing some things you've been doing. But the question is, will you test God on this and trust him to provide for your needs? Will you give him the first portion to declare that all of it belongs to him? See, God is faithful to his promises. He blesses His people who joyfully, cheerfully give generously to His purposes. He blesses us with more of Himself. He blesses us with more of His grace, of His mercy, of His kindness that He has given to us so abundantly in Jesus. Friends, I've heard countless stories of God's faithfulness to His people who have stepped out in faith and obeyed Him in their giving. I'm sure in this church alone, there could be people who could say 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, I've been tithing, I've been generously giving to God's purposes, and I've never been in need of anything. And who knows? Who knows the myriad of ways... That God miraculously keeps washing machines running and hot water heaters from breaking when they should have broken years ago. He will rebuke the devouring insects who threaten to kill the crops. And He will rebuke the little demons who clog drains and cause flat tires and a million other unseen ways that God will show His faithfulness to His obedient people. And friends, every bit of it Every bit of his blessing is grace toward people who don't deserve anything from God. And in fact, not only that, not only do we not deserve anything from him, we deserve condemnation and wrath and judgment. And so any blessing that comes to us from God is only by his grace. We do not earn or deserve any of it. Test God on this. God says, put me to the test. And if you are faithfully giving 10%, why stop there? Consider what it means for you to continue proving God as faithful over and over again. Jesus Himself invites us to test Him. Luke 6.38, Jesus says this to His disciples. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Church family, Consider what we learned from Malachi 3 and from Jesus Himself. We learned that if we rob God, we actually rob ourselves at the same time. We think that we're gaining by keeping, but in fact, we lose when we keep instead of giving. And God invites us to try Him out on this. God invites us to show Him as faithful in our lives. Put Him to the test. Well, third and finally, and very quickly, grow in your love for the Gospel of Jesus. How do we respond? How do we obey God as in what He's saying here in this passage? Well, we grow in our love for the Gospel of Jesus. See, the problem with the people in Malachi's day is that they thought God was being stingy to them. They thought it was pointless to serve God. We might as well join the unbelievers in prospering. You see, they had a small view of the generosity of God. And God corrects that by giving them these lavish promises that He gives them in verses 10 through 12. And so the way to joyfully serve this great God is by basking in His love, in His faithfulness demonstrated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, our God is a giving God, our God is a generous God. And the clearest evidence. Of His generosity is the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. The Father gave His best for us. He gave us His only begotten Son. And the good news of Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection to life should free us to be the most radically generous people in the whole world. Here's the power to serve God and worship God and be generous givers. Here's the power. Jesus is a great Savior for sinful God-robbers like us. Jesus died in our place because we rob God of what is due Him. We've robbed God in our giving. We've robbed God in our time. We've robbed God in our thoughts, in our affections. And Jesus comes to right what we have wronged. He's come to forgive where we have failed. He's come to heal what we have broken. And only, only in the power of this great Gospel Could we ever please and honor God with what we give? All other giving outside of faith in Jesus is just mere sounding of gongs and clanging of cymbals. It's nothing. So what a Savior. What a Savior who would redeem us from our robbing of God and who would set us free to be generous and cheerful givers. Let's ask Him to help us be all that He has called us to be. Lord Jesus, You're a great Savior. You're a great Savior for great sinners like us. We just admit before You, we have failed in this way. We are far too materialistic. We are far too stingy. We are far less generous than You have called us to be. And so Lord, would You set our hearts free by the power of the Gospel? Would You help us to be generous, lavishly generous people who give our lives to supporting Your purposes, to supporting Your Word being declared to all nations? We pray that as we receive Your blessings from Your hand in response to our obedience, that we would always point them back to You and know that they are gifts of Your grace. We thank You for Your promises. Help us to believe them. Help us to test You on this and show Yourself to be faithful in our lives. It is sweet to trust in You, Jesus. It is sweet to take You at Your Word. So Lord, would You let that sweetness be felt and known by Your people today. We pray You'd help us in Your great name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together. Tis so sweet to trust